0: Hey there, folks. Welcome back to the Bookcraft Revival podcast. Got a treat for you this week. I'm talking with Alex Cole from Littlefoot Yurts up in up in Nova Scotia, Canada. Alex was a suggestion from a listener who emailed me. Thanks, Joe. Really appreciate the suggestion. It It is very, very helpful to have... Suggestions from people who know other folks who are up to interesting interesting things and and have a a skill or craft or something like that they could talk about. Alex was great fun to talk to um, we kind of covered covered a gamut of of topics. We started out talking kind of about yurts they they operate a a small yurt building business that focuses on making. Yurts using their own coppiced hardwoods, which is unusual. Uh, a lot of yurts are trying to grow, and um, that's difficult to do when you're you're limiting the number of poles and whatnot you gather from from your coppiced area. Most manufacturers, you know, you just order more lumber and you can make more yurts, but uh, not the case. Not the case with littlefoot yurts. Um, at any rate, their their website looked interesting, so I. I contacted them and Alex said he'd love to chat and we had a good conversation. We we started talking kind of about natural building techniques and traditional shelters and some of his experiences building those and that's that's kind of what our conversation revolves around but we also discuss some other aspects of green woodworking and coppicing and lime and uh liming and things like that which i honestly don't know anything about but it was or didn't know anything about but it was it was quite fascinating and uh definitely made me think I need to learn a little more about lime and liming and the whole history of that and how it's used but at any rate great conversation uh, i really enjoyed it hope you guys do as well i uh, hope you guys learned something from it and uh, can apply it to it to some future projects that you have going on As usual, links to everything can be found over at folkcraftrevival.com forward slash 18. Alex was also kind enough to share a video they put together that talks about uh, their yurts and kind of shows a little bit of the process and shows when being put up and uh, discusses their company and whatnot. Um, I'm going to go ahead and put that in the show notes as well. It's I think it was like a minute and a half long or something like that. So uh, kind of a fun video to, to see, uh, get a visual example of, of what we're talking about here. Highly encourage you to check it out. In addition, Diane uh, Tobias from the rug braiding episode that we did, which was episode, uh, was that 16? I think it was episode 16. I'll go ahead and, and include that in the show notes as well when I find a link to it. But um Diane Tobias emailed me and let me know that her and her co-authors from the book they had written uh, are doing a benefit fundraiser for the food banks. So they're they're looking for people to braid a, a nine-inch circle. They're all going to mail them in. Once they get them all in, they're going to assemble them all together into a, a larger rug, uh, bind them all together and and then auction them off come I think it was September. So um benefits go to the food bank of the winner's choice, whoever wins the auction. So yeah, highly encourage you if you if you've done some rug braiding and you're interested in doing something like that, um, contact uh Diane or myself and I'll I'll share the information with you as well. Um and then I'll remind you guys about this in September as well when when time rolls around for the the rug auction and yeah, hopefully we can raise some money for the food bank. That'd be cool. Um, yeah, with that, let's let's jump into the conversation with Alex. So I, I started out by asking Alex how he became interested and involved in some of these uh, natural building techniques and, and traditional shelters.
1: Well, I feel for me it probably started around 2001. Um, I, I was uh, a chef. Working in the catering industry, um, just pretty much in the city um, in Brighton, and I went off to a, a festival called the Big Green Gathering, and it was there that I met Barbara Jones, who is a uh, a straw bale building guru in England, and it was quite early on for her business, and she was doing um, hands-on projects at uh, at the festival, so I joined in her workshop. And there we built a little straw bale corner of a house and started um, pinning the bales together. And It was just incredibly exciting that we could use these natural materials and also empowering to build your own homes. Something different about England to Canada is most people live in homes that were already built maybe hundreds of years before they were even alive. Yeah. Um, so the concept of being able to build your own shelter or being able to make it for yourself um, was a little bit further down the line. So, this idea of being able to build with straw or clay or lime or rocks was not only um, like a primeval instinct to, that we could do this, but it was really empowering um, to have that um, opportunity to give it a go. So, there I met these other youth people that were doing the green, um, the uh, straw bale workshop. And they turned around to me and said, hey, we're building a straw bale house. And they were re- referring to the Roundhouse Project, okay, um, which is a contemporary straw bale walled roundhouse built in um, St. Hilary in Wales, um, actually in a place called St. Fagans. The little hamlets all have little names there. Um, so this is a thatched roof, round wood structure, um, with a straw bell infill, and it was on the site of an ancient uh, roundhouse that may have been way more than a thousand years old. Um, and we were digging up some of the clay from that site to reconstitute it with lime, horsehair, cow dun, and tallow uh, to make <clears throat> to make a daub, like the and daub sub-daub, to put on the uh, roundhouse. So I I left the uh, rat race of uh, my job in Brighton and moved to Wales and just started helping on this project. That's a big At that change. time, yeah, it was a really big change. I think as a as a youth, I was looking for something that was empowering, something different, something that was more than my career, but also more than a hobby. And then here, I saw this way of combining. Because some of the elements that I already learned in catering and cooking with building, and it was just so exciting, I couldn't resist it. I found it totally irresistible. And and left, my hat and moved to Brighton. To sorry, to Wales. Um, at that stage, my new wife, Celine, who was from Canada, uh, came back to the country after she had been. Uh, sponsoring me to emigrate there so it takes a couple of years this process so she came back and we were newlyweds uh to she was a little shocked to discover that we weren't going to move back into our flat and we were actually going to live in a tent
2: uh in a field wales
0: surprise
1: yeah big surprise so what happened here and uh i actually let her know that she was partly responsible because she had bought me a book on uh, natural building, a quite an early publication called The Straw Bale House uh, that was come out of uh, Nevada.
2: in the
0: States. Yeah, I think I've read that one.
1: Yeah, it's a very famous book now. Um, anyway, th- that book also had sparked my interest. So we started living on this community and uh, I told her not to worry. We were going to build something to live in. It wasn't just going to be a tent. And we got to work, started building our first home, which was a 22-foot teepee. Um, something that we could also put in the field. It didn't matter whether we lived or owned the land or not. We could just live on top of the land with our friends at very little cost, which freed us up to spend our time working on the projects that we wanted to, educating ourselves about natural building.
0: How long were you guys living in the teepee?
1: We were living in teepee for the most of that first year. And actually, the problems that we had, which were with the storms that came in October, Uh, in 2002, pushed us out of the teepee and made us borrow some shelters from other people who had lived on the communities. First of all, um, we converted a railway carriage um, that had been dragged there from the back of a lorry. Uh, It was a banana uh, transport carriage, so it was well insulated. And by the time we put a wood stove and a bunk in it, it was very cozy. as a little cabin for myself and Celine. Unfortunately, that didn't last too long. More people were coming to the community, and that shelter wasn't strictly ours. We were just borrowing it. So our good friend, Raleigh, and Raleigh Clay, who is in fact the namesake of my son, Raleigh, lent us his yurt, which was a beautiful wood built yurt. And at that stage, we began to learn a little bit about yurt construction, um, and other people that were on the community were also building their yurts, so we became their yurt helpers, both helping with yurts and also helping with David's Roundhouse project. In fact, maybe I'll give you the website for the Roundhouse project. Uh, it's called the one word, dot org, uh and you can see that uh, thatched roof building that Perfect. was David's uh, first natural building project.
0: Can you, uh, can you describe a roundhouse for folks that don't know what one is?
1: Well, uh, like its name, it's uh, circular in sh- shape. Um, it has its orange- origins in ancient England, but also in many other countries all over the road, all over the world. There are Nordic roundhouses. There are many roundhouses. And I think the main reason that our ancient culture built in rounds like the yurt, like the teepee, like the Celtic roundhouse, is quite simply because it was made sense and it was practical. A lot of the items they had to build with worked better working in a round without corners. When you take a round stick or a lump of clay or straw or wattle, it doesn't easily join with right angles. Ever yeah. since we've had sawn wood, we've practiced a lot more joinery. And along with joinery come squares and angles. But without that sawn wood element made from modern uh, technologies and ever since the water sawmill was invented, before that, we tended to build round for a lot of great reasons. Um, with, a le- with, a, with a circle home, you have less surface area for the heat to escape from. It's also emotionally, it's more, um, it represents our life, life cycles, the planet, and it can be symbolic of many things in the earth around us. So I think when we're in a round home, we truly feel like it's home. So to describe the roundhouse that I built, it was a, a clay, it was daub covered straw bale roundhouse, circular in shape with a low roof made from thatched uh, water reed, which is uh, known as the Norfolk grass over here in England.
0: Okay, sounds like quite the project. That'd be a. It exciting was quite the project,
1: a and I was only a small part of it. Indeed, it was David's project, and I came on to help for a year or so. But it was an ongoing project, and then that became his calling card uh, and his uh, his CV, his curriculum vitae, as it were, that got him a job. At the Museum of Welsh Life, where he builds roundhouses for experiential education on medieval history at the Welsh Museum of Life, which is free for all to go to if you're in Wales. An amazing place.
2: I'll have to look that
0: up if I ever make it over there.
1: Yeah, it's it, it's really great. So working on that roundhouse and also working in coppice and construction was giving me so much information to, to find out about. Uh, not only with yurt construction, uh, we were building the Kyrgyz hardwood style, but we were also learning about coppice woods. Because in England's medieval history, the peasants didn't saw up wood. They collected the regrowth of hardwood trees, which is in fact the definition of a coppice. Where hardwood trees are cut down to the stump, really close to the ground, and they regrow. In Canadian terminology, we tend to call those suckers, suckering shoots. Yeah. But those suckers were harvested and grown on a cycle, so you could come back to that same stump on any cycle. From one year, for example, um, basket willow is grown on a yearly rotation, cut every year, and then used for basket making. Yurt poles.
2: We're kind of on a
1: cycle of about 10 to 14 years, depending on how wide and how chunky you want your yurt poles. And of course, firewood was also coppiced on a cycle of about 25 years. So it was thicker and bigger. But the huge advantages of coppicing, which I'd like to outline now, if I could. Yeah, please. the, the, The tree stays alive. So... When you cut the tree down to the stump in winter, a lot of the sugars and the regrowth properties are held in stasis because of the cold season. And when the spring comes around, they are redirecting those energies into new growth from the stump. So the tree not dying means that the bacteria levels stay the same. The, uh, uh, there's less erosion in the ground because that root system still stays healthy and rooted. And then, of course, the regrowth is, is very fast because there's a massive root ball that used to belong to the original tree to throw all that energy into purely regrowth. So the regrowth will grow five times faster than an individual new seedling. Interesting. So this wasn't technology. This was Mother Nature. And mankind merely harvested following Mother Nature's lead, and the process of collecting those poles by hand um, and cutting them, not only left the tree alive, but left the environment protected from erosion, from degradation, from and the habitats as well. You know, when you're, when you're clear cutting, for example, um, it's not just the trees that are gone, all the animals that live in that space have gone. Now, because coppicing has been practiced for 2,000 years, there's a lot of evidence to show that when you coppice by hand, you're cutting small area, usually from a third acre up to a maximum of two or three acres. Now, in this case, the wildlife moves to the outside area and your new small coppice cut becomes a forest garden for that wildlife. And many of the studies show, in fact, Possibly all the studies show that the life cycles and numbers of creatures and species that live in that area actually increase when there's a coppice, which is the opposite to what happens when you clear-cut, which is also cutting all the trees, but causing massive devastation to the habitats. Coppicing by hand and foot does not create or cause any devastation to the habitats, leaving many of the animals well-fed and with a home.
0: I have a degree in wildlife biology and that really does make a lot of sense um, from a biological standpoint because a lot of the animals, they make use of kind of the edges between terrains. So, I mean, when you're when you're clear cutting, most of the time with machinery, you're taking out a vast swath of forest. When you're only doing a couple acres or something like that, when you're talking uh, hand coppicing, yeah, that makes total sense because then you would kind of create more of an edge between habitat types and let some of the uh, early successional species move into that area while you still have your later successional ones around it. So that makes a lot of sense from a from an animal habitat point of view.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, when we do the coppicing, we try and consider the habitats as well. So we might leave uh, standing deadwood, some poplar trees, something for the swallows to nest in. Um, also, our coppice that we do... Uh, here for yurt making is extremely small. Even small by coppicing levels. We only harvest a quarter acre a year. So that's a space, okay. you know, a hundred foot by uh a hundred foot, let's say, or a hundred foot by a hundred and fifty foot maybe.
0: How many uh how many yurts does something like that make?
1: Uh, Well, in the beginning, we were harvesting from overstood coppice. So um, we came to an area that had already been cut for firewood maybe 30 years ago, uh, was growing up with predominantly red maple, which was the species we were interested in. And by cutting the overstood coppice, we had a lot of firewood-sized wood that we didn't, weren't really interested in. So it became part of the exchange with the landowner to cut the firewood for him and the six smaller skinny poles we would collect for our yurt-making.
2: Okay. Now, we have
1: been doing this for 11 years now, and in fact, it was last year. Uh, it was, yeah, it was, maybe it was the year before last that we started to cut the area we cut 10 years previously. Um, So in the beginning, we are cutting overstood um, coppice and preparing that cut area for regrowth. Now, what that means is going to each one of the stumps, making sure that the stump is cut in a way that it's not going to contract diseases or molds. So that means cutting the stumps on a little slant to ensure water runs off and making a really clean job of it and also clearing all the debris, the fallen sticks, and fallen leaves away from the stump to ensure it has enough light to create that regrowth, that healthy, straight regrowth that we want. Now, 11 years down the line, we're harvesting from the areas that we cut before, and this time, we're taking everything from that stump for our yurt making. So our process is to go to the area that we've been preparing for a coppice, religiously go back to the same size area and that same piece that we cut 10 years beforehand, and we take everything there. Now, because we're building a variety of sizes of yurts, we're able to take everything. Take it home, shave it, and it's either the skinniest wood would be um, wall poles for a 12-foot yurt, And then the the next size up for that, if it was good and straight, but quite small, it would be a roof pole for a 12-foot yurt. And then going up, roof poles for 17-foot yurts, roof poles for 20-foot yurts, and good strong poles that have 2 inches or more thickness at the base. But maybe just one or two in the coppice uh, regrowth, because when you find it grows back, it grows back a bit like a bush. And in the very center, you'll get the strongest leaders, Now, they'll be the biggest poles. Around them, we'll get the next biggest poles, all the way to the outside, where you tend to get skinny, slightly bent, curvy poles. So the skinny, slightly bent, curvy poles, perfect for wall-making, and those leaders in the middle, which there may be only two or three of those leaders per copper stump, they might be 17 or 18 foot, so they're big enough for us to cut for one of our wedding-style palace rental yurts. Hmm. So because we're building all sizes, and because we're trying to make what the coppice provides, we harvest everything, we shave everything, and we set it in bundles tied with three ropes to keep them straight uh, for a year to dry at least. And then the following year, we can look at the sticks that we've harvested and count them and say, okay, we've got maybe two 12-foot yurts, a 17-foot yurts, two 20-foot yurts, and half a palace yurts worth in that year. And that's what I can build with each year. So as a production company, we're not focused on producing manufactured uh, yurts for multiples of people. We build four or five yurts a year. All of them are hand-carved and hand-created by us.
0: Which is very unique. I I don't know of any other yurt company that actually... Coppices their own wood and hand makes things. Uh, most other yurt companies, you just buy lumber and use sawn wood. Yes,
1: which means when they have more orders, they can produce more product. Now, when yeah. we have more orders, we quite simply say no because what we were trying to get out of this project was to create a grow-your-own yurt using the traditional techniques from England. Now, these green woodwork, steam bending, that splitting, rising. Techniques, as well as the coppicing are more than 2,500 years old in our country but are actually common to the whole planet uh, when you go back that far because it just made sense to harvest round wood and use simple hand tools. And we can, we can show that this happens because when we look at the Kyrgyz-style yurt, they have used coppice wood and specifically willow coppice wood because of the massive uh, deforestation that happened in Asia, really left them with very little trees. But their nomadic lifestyle and possible descent from Mongolia, as in their cultural descent from Mongolia, they had this traditional shelter, the yurt. So they started reinventing it with hardwoods, using different techniques that were appropriate for the hardwoods. In England we, again, were building a different kind of shelter, but with very much the same techniques. In 2000, and oh, I can't remember what year it was, but we went to Kyrgyzstan, and we learned to use their green woodworking brakes, which is a clamp to hold round wood, and it's very similar to the English tradition. Ours is uh, up-down clamping, and theirs is side-to-side clamping using their hip. Um, okay. They have tools that are very like our North American or English style draw knife, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Theirs is a handled piece of metal, but it's very similar. So same, same, but different. Same, similar techniques to build a slightly different shelter, but because they're using the similar kind of wood, i.e. hardwoods, not softwoods, a lot of our styles were similar. Yeah. so we were already building with Kyrgyz style even though we didn't know it so when we went to Kyrgyz Kyrgyzstan we kind of put the two together and, and learned a lot from the yurt masters on the way that they did things and were also able to share with them the way that we did things and uh, it was a real pleasure because they were both hands on techniques so it wasn't like we were coming from the UK with all kinds of power tools and routers trying to show them how you could quickly make a yurt. We were comparing this is the way you do it, this is the way we do it. And there was um an equal interest, I would say, between yurt makers. Two
0: different versions of a traditional handmade, yeah, old, yurt. old techniques. Yurt. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's really good. And in fact, if you do go to our web- website, which is simply lfya.ca, um, there is a section on it called About Us, and I believe there's 20 blogs outlining with material guides the way the Kyrgyz make their yurts.
0: Mm, so, I didn't um, see that one. I'm going to have to that... go through and read that.
1: Yeah, it's a way that we wanted to offer what we learned to everybody else through the website. Um, in fact, almost all our techs, techniques are very transparent. You know, I invite people all the time to just try doing them themselves and the empowerment that creates. And that became one of the other angles of our um, small business, which was educational workshops, Yeah, where we teach people to build yurts just in a, a one once-yearly camp every year.
0: Do you actually manage to run through a, a yurt uh, to completion? I imagine that's a pretty time-intensive no. project. So, yeah, I was about to say yeah, that would be a long workshop if you had people there to run an entire work- yurt through construction.
1: Yeah, we pretty much – we have all the stages of constructions at readiness. So we have shaped poles that have already been uh, bent and put in a jig that people create to be the wheel. We have wood that we have split already uh, to go into the steam box, ready to come out and be bent and shaped by the group. Um, plus, we have trees that we harvest with the group to learn that technique of riving, where you actually steer the split through the wood instead of sawing
0: it. Okay. So it's more about learning the underlying techniques um, that, are, that are useful through the process.
1: Absolutely. And then we teach people about harvesting and coppicing, uh, so they're able to go off, and it might take them the next year or even year and a half to complete their yurt frame but uh, they know what size sticks to collect and what they're going to do with them and how they're going to construct their yurt with those sticks.
0: How many hours would you say it, it actually takes to build a yurt with traditional hand tools?
1: Um, I would tell people that uh, for most of them it will take three months uh, part-time. Um, I think they probably, you probably could build it if you had the materials dry and ready in a month um, if you're working full-time. Okay. Uh, but our processes are quite time, quite uh, labour intensive. Yeah. Um, but that's part of the joy of it. You know, we're not trying to manufacture yurts. You know, to make the most income. We're trying to fulfil our mission statement, which was to grow a this woodland to make a forever yurt forest.
0: Which are two very different goals, and yeah, that that definitely makes a difference.
1: Yeah. In fact, we we often have felt from the beginning that uh, it was because we weren't trying to make, our our emphasis wasn't trying to, to make a business that made as much money or grew. Our emphasis was to create yurts in this way. We found that there was just enough people who wanted a handcrafted yurt to keep us busy. And then also, we were putting a lot of our focus on providing not only the yurt, but creating the whole space for people's parties and events. And being caterers before, I was working in the kitchen and Celine was working in front of house. We're working with clients that we already knew from our previous careers. And then not only providing the yurts, but also thinking about what natural floorings we could put in, what really beautiful lighting we could create. And maybe we're not just renting one yurt, but we're renting a village of yurts, so people can have accommodation for their their guests, plus a big dining and party and dancing space. Or they may want a small rental on the side like a teepee for having a group fire if it was a bit windy and creating the whole space for the
2: event.
0: Yeah, that's taken a, a different twist. You would go from being a manufacturer to being more of an event caterer. But I kind of like how you blend the two, and I like your philosophy on uh, yeah, not wanting to necessarily become the biggest jerk company or to have tons of business, but to do it in a more sustainable and um, in a manner that you want to?
1: Well, the coppicing was certainly self-limiting because each year we uh, we would only harvest the area that we've cut from the years before, so it had to be the same size. If we were to bite off more than we could chew, as it were, then we'd be taking into next year's supply.
2: Um,
1: But I'm very proud to say that the productivity of our coppice woodland, which is what we were trying to find out, like will a coppice wood uh, grow in Atlantic Canada? What species are we looking for? Has it ever been done before intentionally? Uh, We weren't sure about any of those answers but we have created a red maple coppice and like I said, it makes about four yurts a year and it really fits our, our lifestyle because we'll harvest in the month of November and we'll be out in the woods using our yurts to work to dwell in out there and also doing educational projects and uncoppicing coppicing every November. That's on our our workshops page. And then we take the wood back to Nova Scotia to uh, our home in the Annapolis Valley. And then we start carving it through winter with a draw knife on a greenwood working break. We carve it and we set it to one side. And usually by the time spring comes, we're not working with that wood from that year. We're working from the wood we cut the previously year.
2: Yeah.
1: So I'll look at those tiles. And it's very much self-limited. I can only make so many yurts a year. It was, and that was the perfect amount. We We couldn't make... Uh, 10 or 20 yurts a year because we'd have to double our staff. And although that is possible, it wasn't possible to double the wood that we could acquire. So we're very happy with the way that the idea and Mother Nature are keeping us in equilibrium.
0: Yeah, I like that. Uh, I kind of want to go back. You mentioned splitting the wood. Uh, you said uh, riving the wood or something like that to, to steer the split? Riving the Riving the wood, yeah. could you explain that and tell us a little bit about it?
1: Sure. Um, well, riving is a pre-sawmill technique, um, and it was something that was done unanimously for everything. You can imagine if you couldn't get sawn wood, but you had a round stick, but it was oversized. Now, you've only got a couple of options. You can either start shaving it into it in a, with a blade until it gets to the size you want, which is going to take a long time, or you could bring it down to size by splitting it in half, or splitting it into thirds. And then, of course, a lot of the green woodworking that was being used for chairs, uh, chair bodgers, or bobbin makers. So this is pre-war mill techniques where greenwood work was used to power the industrial revolution. Green yeah. woodwork was making the charcoal. Green wood, wood, woodwork was making the bobbins in the textile industry. Now, the way that they made those bobbins, which are a very uniform shape, just for an example, would be to take that wood and split it into the quarter round, rive it into the quarter round, riving's the word. And when it's a quarter instead of a round, it has two finite edges, which it can shrink from. So then that piece of wood can shrink with no cracking. Whereas if you have a a circle of wood, uh, when it shrinks in the way that it shrinks the most, which is tangentially, i.e. round in a circle, of course, its circumference is a set distance. So when it shrinks tangentially, it must crack or check because that's just physics. There's only so much circumference for it to shrink from, therefore a crack must happen. But when you cut it to a quarter, it has two edges which can draw together. Uh, eliminating the cracking. Now, that quarter round could then be put on a, a lathe of some kind, maybe water-powered, maybe foot-powered, and turned into the bobbing. I didn't speak much about the writhing te- technique, um, but to briefly describe riving, it is a way of steering a split through a piece of roundwood. So the process really starts in the forest by selecting a good piece of wood. That means selecting something that hasn't got a lot of branches or knots, or maybe those branches got knocked off when they were younger. So it has a mostly a straight trunk. And then to stand back from the tree and examine the bark. Because when you stand back from the tree and look at the bark, you are looking at an image of what the grain looks like underneath because the bark reflects the direction of the grain. So if you see the bark go like a wave to the left and then to the right, then underneath it, that grain is also waving through the wood.
2: Yeah.
1: So you look at the bark, and by having a good overall look of it, you would pick something that had mostly straight grain. So it really starts by picking the good piece of wood for your job. Because you're not going to harvest everything. You're going to harvest one tree that is going to work for your writhing project, whatever it is. So this is also um, environmental to take what you need and not take more than you need. So you select the tree. Selection is important. Take that tree. And then you've got to put it in a clamp because, fair enough, you want to split it. But you don't just want to split it with an axe. You want to put tensions on the fibers so you can force the split up or force the split down when you want to steer it. Typically, you'll be wanting to make that split through the center of the wood to make two planks with straight grain that could then be easily steam-bent into a new shape. We do this technique particularly for our wheels, where we take one seven-foot log without too many brakes in it. We put it in a greenwood working clamp, which is an up-down clamp that clamps any size of material, any shape. And then uh, we start the split from the end with an L-shaped riving tool called a throw. So the throw has a blunt blade and a handle on one side. That L-shape enables you to get the um, proper piece of purchase on it to use the fulcrum and lever to split that wood apart. So you drive the blunt blade into the end of the wood and then you pull on the lever pulling the forcing the two sides apart hmm. as the split splits down the middle it may go high or low which of course would mean it would split out making your plate piece useless if you see it going high then you put more stress on the split fibers below so now you've got this thing bananering coming into two pieces one piece top side one piece low side
2: yeah if
1: the, if the split goes high you put your all your body weight on the bottom fibers, and then that split is forced back down again. Uh, it's very well outlined in any of the green woodworking books by Mike Abbott or Ray Tabor.
0: That's something I probably need to look into. I've always done my splitting just with like a an axe and a wedge, and yeah, it's definitely could be improved upon.
1: Well, this is quite different. I mean, there are times where you need an axe and a wedge. If you're trying to split uh, a log that's 10 inches around...
0: That's more of what I'm doing it, most of the time, yeah. And
1: axes. Yes, but we are splitting logs at around 4 inches around. Now, this splitting technique is really great for small furniture, chairs, and yurts. But it's one of the ancient green working techniques, and I've found there's not many books. In fact, there's... Three or four gurus that have been uh, republishing old journals or writing their own versions of uh, scripts on green woodworking. Unfortunately, because green woodworking was a peasant skill, uh, it wasn't well documented. Nobody wrote books about it. There's just, uh, I guess, word of mouth lore about it. So a couple of modern day Gurus have tried to put what they've learned into writing, and uh, the encyclopedia for green woodworking by Ray Tabor, or any of the uh, green woodworking course books by Mike Abbott. Both of those people run educational projects around green woodworking in England um, are excellent guides, and you can buy their books, whatever country you are in, and use it as a course workbook to learn the skills of green woodworking.
0: Thanks for sharing. That's uh, definitely something that will make uh, learning a little easier for people. It's always good to have a good reference or a good resource for for materials to learn from.
1: Absolutely. At this stage, I think it's really important to uh, mention another person, apart from Mike Abbott and Ray Tabor, and that is Ben Law. Ben Law wrote a book about um, green woodworking in coppice forests called The Woodland Way. It doesn't focus so much on the techniques of green woodworking, but more the overview of the holistic idea of coppicing and collecting your wood and working a woodlot.
0: More the why instead of the how.
1: Yeah, the why and also the growing and the harvesting section rather the component rather than the building component.
0: Okay, yeah, those are, that'd be a good resource. I'll uh, be sure to link all those up in the the show notes when we when we uh, publish this. So you were just talking about using a, a traditional throw to, to drive your wood. Are there any other... Um, traditional techniques? Yeah, what, are, what, are your, what does your general tool set look like when you're building a yurt?
1: Oh, very simple and very cheap. Uh, first of all, the draw knife uh, uh, and a saw, a small saw to cut the wood. Um, now with small coppice, you can use a circular saw, battery-powered in the woods. Uh, you can use a bow saw, a hand saw, a pruning saw, or a small chainsaw, depending on how much quantity you're cutting. Um, so of course, the saw for cutting is important. The second tool that I'm using, so this is in chronologically, in order that I'm going to use these tools uh, from starting the uh, okay. process, so cutting the tree with a saw, and then using the bill hook. The bill hook again is an ancient tool from Europe, um, and many, many different types of uh, bill hook. The Italians make one that's lightweight and used for olive trees. The English one was a bit more heavy and tend to be used with bigger hardwoods because of the kind of engine they were doing with something a little bit more than gardening.
2: Yeah. So
1: it's an English bill hook that I use. Now that's like a, a machete with about three times the weight and twice the thickness in the blade. And as the name suggests, the blade curves round to make a hook. Now this bill hook enables you to do a number of things. It's the everything tool. You could use it for shaving your wood. You could also use it for riving. I tend to use it when I first cut the wood. I'll run the bill hook down the wood holding it high at the base, the thick end of the wood, and then running the bill hook down, liberating and cutting off all the branches and little sticks really close to the so in the end I've got a nice slender pole that can be bundled and removed from the woods okay so that bill hook is spending most of the time hooked to my belt or or in my hand as i trim up the wood and tidy it ready for extraction so that's the saw and the bill hook once i get the the wood home then we'll put it in clamps that we make ourselves um a good place to learn these clamps is through um mike abbott uh he has a a woodland crafts book where he depicts many medieval clamps so you've got to build the tool to use the tool so you have to build the clamp to hold the wood and then you can use your two-handled draw knife to shave off the bark shaving off the bark with cuts of the draw knife and doing it in a way that there's no cadmium there's no sapwood there's no bark and each edge of the cut overlaps with the next cut these cuts are so smooth that although it seems to take a long time in the draw-knifing stage, it saves a lot of time because there's very little sanding to do afterwards. Yeah. Um, so the draw-knife would would be the next tool. And then uh, the throw is used for splitting any of the wood down to size. Um, for instance, if you're building with ash, you may decide to take a thicker pole and get four poles four yurt sticks out of every wooden pole that you collect from the forest by splitting each one into four we typically use the throw for splitting our wheels which are made from one ash log split then steamed around in a corner Hmm. so after the splitting process comes steaming steaming of the wheels and steaming of the wall poles the reason we steam the wall poles is because they may be wobbly And also we want them to go around in a circle. So we put a slight curve in every pole, even if it has a wobble in the other direction. And then we can orientate that one uniform curve that all the poles have, because they've all gone in the steam box and they've all come out and gone in the jig. We can orientate that one uniform dimension to create a shape that we want. So we orientate those in the certain direction to create a trellis that bends around in a circle. Nice. So I guess I unmentioned tool that you will have to make yourself if you wanted to build in this way is a steam box. I quite simply use a stock pot on a turkey boiler with a canvas flange around the lid to keep it steam tight, but not so tight that it would explode. The lid would pop off before explosion would happen if there was a blockage. So a certain amount of safety has to be looked after when looking, making a steam box. Um, And then I create a box that is a box within a box with two-inch insulation in between. Because I find you haven't just got to steam the wood for an hour an inch. You've got to steam it good and hot. If you're half-steaming it from a kettle, you might find that it tries to bend right in the middle. But it doesn't bend evenly through the wood. So to create a box that has even steam heat, that's good and hot, all the way through the length of the box, uh, was part of the design process that made a steam box that really worked well.
0: That's been my issue-making. I haven't steamed all that much, but I made some snowshoes a couple of years ago. I uh, kind of cobbled together a, a steaming tube for it, but yeah. I didn't spend enough time on that part, and that uh, I probably should have spent a little more time putting together a better steam tube. It would have saved me time in the long run.
1: Yes, yeah. I mean, you may find it... If- you know, when you do uh, things for the first time, you learn a lot. And it's only when you start repeating the process that you start to hone down your system. So no shame with things not being perfect last time. <laughs> um, and, and undoubtedly, you would find that if you covered it with insulation or rock wall um, or put several entrances for your steam tubes to come in, you could create a steam box that was hotter and better than the one you had before. Um, Next in line for the uh, tools and processes we're going to use uh, would be uh, a forge and a red poker because we have a poker with, that's made of different sizes of keystock metal that we heat up into a, hor- a forge until it's glowing red and then we burn every mortise in the wheel. So once you take that red hot poker, Unlike a drill or a chisel, it's going to make a hole that is exactly the same every single time. So this is incredibly labor-saving, and uh, it may take a full day for us to complete a wheel with the holes. But a lot of that time is taken measuring out the spaces. It might need 40, 40 mortises burnt. And then, of course, you've got two angles. You've got the radial angle, because the poles go out like sun rays from from the sun. Uh, But also, there's the elevation of the roof angle. So you've got two angles to follow for those roof wheel mortises, which could be quite tricky with a a chisel. Having said that, many people, including all the Mongol yurts, are built with chisels and carved out. It's this technique... I learned it in England, but later on I was to discover that it was a Kyrgyz technique as well. Um, it's very quick and a lot less wobbly. Um, a big drill, that's like a plumber's drill that's going to cut a hole for you or a mortising machine, there's a lot of vibration, a lot of turning. But with a hot poker, you can just line it up with your eyeball and stand with your legs apart so you're straight up and good and even, and then just use your human element to know which way up is to create the same mortise every time turning the wheel. Um, and that's also depicted on the website. So the hot poker is, uh, is one of our tools. After that comes a lot of stringing and tying because all the components are individual, and we have to connect the trellises together and put the loops on the roof poles. Uh, but that's it for my toolbox.
0: That is pretty simple. That's a lot more simple than I anticipated.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it makes it very cost-efficient as well. And there's a lot of joy to be found in learning how to make the clamps, building your own forge, just for the end process to get that poker hot. Um, So in the toolbox, that was just a draw knife, a bill hook, a throw, pencil, (laughs) that kind of thing. We hope a lot of that is depicted on our website. Um, We want to share the way that we do. I know through our workshops, many people are building little foot yurt style yurts in Canada with coppice wood. And it's really become a fantastic project for them because they haven't needed a lot of money. They didn't have to go to the hardware store. They just had to take a really beautiful walk in the woods to collect their materials
0: yeah i would love to come out and take a workshop at some point i think that would be a, a great technique great experience great thing to learn so uh yeah
1: really great particularly in november um i can recommend for anybody listening that was thinking about workshop come in november that's when the process starts that's when the sap levels are low or dormant in the woods so it's the good time for cutting and it, the whole process starts in the woods with cutting the regrowth for your yurt poles. And at that stage, we also do some other greenwood working techniques. Recently, we've been working on making charcoal retorts. Hmm. So this is a way, a greenwood working technique to make cooking fuel. So it's recently become very popular for um, soil amendment for yeah. organic gardeners. Um, That's where I've it seen biochar. it.
2: Yeah. yeah,
1: people call it biochar, although... I like to take all the wood that is not good enough for yurt making and chop it up into five or six inch lengths. And they're mostly between one and a half and two inch diameter. And then I load four kilns, which are 55 gallon drums that go inside a rather large seven foot stainless steel kiln. And we heat that wood until it gasifies, and then we use the gasification of that wood as the catalyst to finish the reaction, leaving the charcoal in wood, the charcoal carbonized wood, uh, without any hydrocarbon toxins, gases. You know, it has to refract off, essentially, all the petroleum-style products, the things like bitumen and tar, Um, methane butane all of those gases are in wood as well in the same way they're in oil so we cook those off till we have pure clean carbon clean enough that you could eat it as a as a toxin reducing uh, medicine for your body But we tend to take it just for lumpwood charcoaling and we make for all those people who come to the charcoal making workshop it's a free workshop we do it as a way to, to share the love and share the knowledge but also to bring people down to the woodland so they can see what we're doing and with that in most times they will help me tidy that coppice woodland as well so I get a little labor in return yeah but I can really recommend people coming to those November workshops who are interested because in the woods is where it starts with our techniques
0: I've never actually made charcoal so that would be another fascinating process just to learn a little bit more about but uh, you you guys run yeah, a couple other workshops and whatnot too don't you did you say you had something about liming?
1: Yeah, well, uh, I did mention liming earlier. Um, now, when I was in Wales, uh, myself and Celine built a straw bale cottage for ourselves. She, once we had moved out of the TP, moved into in and out of the railway carriage and in and out of the yurt, this whole time I had become fascinated with straw bale building. and was determined to build my own straw bale cottage. So we started building a bale cottage, just load-bearing. It was a lot of bale frenzy. You know, in the course of two days, we pretty much had the whole building made out of straw, like building with giant blocks, pitting them together with hazel wood. And unlike in Canada, where we tend to cover modern straw bale buildings with clay, uh, in England, we have a long history of lime. So we have limestone buildings from the 12th century that are still standing today. They're made with limestone rock, with limestone mortar, that's the glue between the rocks, and then with limestone render. that is the uh, lime eggshell that goes on top of the rocks on the outside of the building. And then on top of that, lime wash, which is the lime paint, which is the last final barrier that goes on top of that render. So it was one rock calcium carbonate that did all it was your building method it was our building medium and it was our paint
2: wow
1: and uh, i don't know how much you know about lime but it's um not only has it been used for a long time once you have taken the limestone rocks you have to cook it in a kiln and then after it's cooked in that kiln it keeps a chemical memory where it remembers it's time in the kiln and it wants to not dry out, but it wants to force any moisture in the rock out so it gets back to that place where it was in the kiln. So okay. going in the kiln kind of resets its chemical memory. And then when it comes out of the kiln, you put the reaction in reverse. So instead of the kiln drives all the water out and kicks, cooks the calcium carbonate, then you take these calcium carbonate rocks out of the kiln and they're half the weight because all that moisture has come out of them, and then you add water to them. This makes the process happen in reverse. The whole slurry of rocks and water heats up to hundreds of degrees. You must do it in a steel uh, bathtub or something that is very, very sturdy, because it's going to get so hot. very caustic and alkaline as well um, but then once it's made it becomes stable as a hydrated lime now this lime will last indefinitely in what we call the lime pit so back before hardware stores and back before sawmills most households or country homes would have had a lime pit in their backyard. So this is a place where they collected their lime from the lime makers that would have been every 10 kilometers down the coast, uh, all over England and Wales. You collect your lime and then you put it in your lime pit and you cover it with water. So it has a layer of water on the top. Now there it can be held indefinitely. And so when you Hmm. need to work and repair 12th century building, you simply walk to the end of the garden instead of going to the hardware store scoop up some lime, mix it with sand or mix it into paint or mix it into render and, and and repair your house. So the lime pit was, it's like the hardware store for medieval buildings.
0: I love learning about some of these old yeah, traditional techniques and methods and whatnot. We have a number of lime kilns that I've seen around yep. here, but they're not used anymore. They're no, no one does yeah. lime around here anymore so i've seen old like run down lime kilns that were used 100 150 years ago but i honestly have no idea how they're used anymore or of anyone that uses yeah lime
1: well i mean lime was an important part of building for literally hundreds if not thousands of years um We had lime pits all over England. I have been searching for lime pits in Nova Scotia. When I first came here, I thought I was going to work with more straw bale and then then work more on my lime kiln making for making a strong outer shell for those straw bale houses. But unfortunately, we discovered that there's too much metal, too much magnesium in the lime around here. It makes it soft, soft, Hmm. but ideal components for making gypsum. So the soft lime can be used for gypsum, as in uh, uh, drywall making, and there are drywall... Well, there's lime, lime quarries here, and then the, the lime is sent south where it's made into drywall sheets that are then probably sold back to Canada. <laughs> um, so this metal element, this uh, magnesium, makes it too soft for it to be an effective uh, lime mortar or lime render. So unfortunately, I gave up my ideas of working with lime and and looked to Kim Thompson, uh, who was the major reason that I moved to Nova Scotia. When we first moved here, we'd heard about Kim from England and her work with straw bale. And... Out of all peoples in in North America, she stood out as somebody who was working solely with education and development of her ideas around clay and straw bale. So when we came here, uh, we wanted to go and study with her. And indeed, we moved uh, to live with Kim uh, in the second year in Nova Scotia, and there we discovered that clay works very differently from lime, but is more appropriate for our climate, which was wet, and of course the lime had too much uh, metal in it here. Yeah. Now, compared to lime, clay you have to treat in a different way, but it was—it uh, has turned out to be a very effective and appropriate covering for straw bale houses, as long as the eaves, the clay, is also protected. So it's a protection for the wall, But you must also protect your protection with good eaves, if that makes sense. Eaves being overhang from the roof.
0: My wife and I have talked about building a straw bill house several times. So at some point when we find property and settle down, I think that's probably what we'll end up doing. But I've still got to learn a lot about it before I I jump into building our own house.
1: Yeah, and, and the thing is, a lot of people find out the mistakes for the first time that they do it. But that's the only house they're going to build. Yeah. So I absolutely recommend contacting Kim Thompson, and she has been pulling uh, the 100 or so natural builders in Nova Scotia together in, in the past decade, twice over for natural building symposiums so that the best practices can get shared with new builders.
0: Hmm. I'll have to look up those symposiums, too, and, and link up to them so people can find them.
1: Uh, Absolutely. Well, I think Kim's probably well-known. i half expected to see her on your website, actually, when it comes to clay and straw.
0: I'm sure I'll have to talk with her at some point, yes.
1: Absolutely. Oh, yes. So I wanted to mention, you mentioned that there was lime-burning kilns there, but they're not used and not a lot of information around. I've got one... um, reference book that I used. Um, it's, it's pretty old. I'm not sure if it's out of uh, production as far as a book, but it's called Small Scale Lime Burning by Michael Wingate. Okay. And in that, it talks about the history of lime kilns, the different lime kilns that have been made by peasants in Africa, you know, equally statured people in England uh, and uh, all over Europe, as well as modern high-energy lime building, which is where most of our lime comes from today. Yeah, uh, I might mention that one of the big differences between old-fashioned lime made in a handmade kiln cooked with wood versus lime that you store is the energy that it's made with. Now, lime that you buy in the store is made with an enormous amount of energy. It goes off so quickly that you could set the concrete on a lighthouse underwater with lime. Wow! And and that is practical for many processes, but unfortunately, like concrete made with high energy, it gives it embodied stress, which means over time when the organic components, your rocks, your wood your frame moves with the force of gravity making it just move a little bit that concrete that lime acts quite easily because it's got too much stress now old-fashioned cooked lime has very low energy and it goes off very slowly in fact the line the roman roman's made in rome has still not finished going off typically
2: wow homemade limestone
1: <laughs> will go off Yeah, it'll go off over a period of 200 years. Now, that is the the untalked-about element that has made these thousand-year-old buildings, these farmhouses, still stand in England because as the uh, building has slumped and moved over the decades and centuries, the lime gets a little excited. Its molecules and particles start vibrating and then it'll resettle after the movement and continue going off. So it actually kind of stays pliable and a little alive, as it were, throughout the whole process and doesn't really completely harden up at all.
0: That's fascinating. I never knew that. Uh, Yeah, that's something I'm going to have to learn more about, but I never knew that it it took that long to harden up.
1: Yeah, well, the crucial element there is the fact that when you do it with uh, fossil fuels and manufacturing techniques, it's hard and fast and has a lot of stress. Yeah. When you do it slow and at home, the lack of stress in the material itself actually is an attribute.
2: Mm. Yeah. Cool.
1: And that's why uh, modern techniques, for these unknown reasons, couldn't quite match the longevity we got from these medieval backyard techniques.
0: I think there's a lot of things like that where we attempt to replicate it in a modern fashion and it just doesn't quite work the same way and it baffles a lot of people.
1: Yeah. Uh, and, that, and that's part of the joy of rediscovering old techniques, that the simplicity actually has answers to the moderns of t- modern problems of today.
0: Yeah. Uh, can, we, can we circle back to your workshop for just a second? Yeah. Um, so you said you have a yurt building workshop and a charcoal, build- or a charcoal making workshop. Do you, have, do you run any other workshops? And how many people do you generally have in your workshops at a time?
1: As it happens, we are beginning to scale back our workshops a little bit. We've been running them for 15 years, and um, we have a a yurt building workshop that happens in April, Um, It didn't happen this year because of the current crisis going on, Um, but where I can really recommend people to come is to our back-to-back workshops that happen in November. One is on the first stages of yurt making and collecting your materials to yurt making in the afternoon. It's just a day workshop to get you started, and then through the night and the next day we work on charcoal making, and then we do frame construction in April. These are just Titbit workshops. We usually have 10 or 12 people uh, coming to each workshop. And I am sorry to say we are scaling them back and we're considering just doing the November workshops and maybe trying to create another one in November uh, just because it fits our family life a bit better.
0: Just getting a little too busy?
1: Yeah, a little bit too busy. So I just wanted to make that clear that November is really the time to book in for a workshop.
0: Do you generally sell out on those pretty quick?
1: People uh, book through the year. They can register online. Um, it's not a case that we sell out. I don't know why. I think it's just uh, people apply slowly and then things. Can, some people drop out at the last minute. Uh, we're not focused on getting registries for um, the upkeep of our business, as it were. So I'm just focused on those people that are really interested are going to get our full
0: attention.
2: Yeah,
1: um, and it's not it's not a ton of people, which is great
0: for us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, in that case, I won't try and direct too many people towards you.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, you, you know what I mean. Uh, those people who are really interested do find us.
0: They'll find you. Yeah, those who are interested in learning.
1: Um, so maybe um, we talked a little bit about the cops That was really important to get that idea out. Um, But a lot of our company is focused on events um, and creating the party, the summer season of displaying the yurts, letting people who maybe haven't really got the time or energy to build a yurt. But they would like to have a little Yurt village and live in it for a couple of weeks when their family comes to visit. So we do yurt rentals at the Yurt Village.
2: Yeah. And of course
1: the weddings and parties expose, you know, two hundred or three hundred people to a time to at a time to these natural built structures. So that's been a really great way that we've been able to share what we do with with people.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about how you started your business and how that grew and came to be what it is? Why uh, how did you guys come to be doing uh, more like yurt rentals?
1: Well, we started the business in 2005, um, and the first yurt that we built was made from upcycled materials um, that we collected from the dump or from things that people were throwing out. Um, and it was a funky little yurt, but we were just building with the resources that we have, and we're only really planning on making a yurt for ourselves. Um, then, as we were beginning to complete that yurt uh, in our friend's backyard, because we lived in a flat, there were so many people who were coming around that were interested. They really wanted to see what we were doing. It was they'd never seen anything like it. Yeah. So at that stage, we actually started a non for profit called the Yurt Education and Shelter Society, um, and invited those people to come on and help us build the yurt. So this was great for half a year. They helped us with the and uh, We had a few meetings and. Uh, shared tea and construction techniques. Um, But as as the year grew on, I felt, and Celine felt, that we could really make this into something that could support us. And at that stage, we knew that we should blend our techniques of catering and support for community events with the construction of this shelter and provide shelter for those community events. So that was when the rental idea first came about and we took that first yurt and within in the first year in 2005 we rented it to little eco camps uh kids summer camps uh scout camps pretty much anything where they wanted a small shelter for accommodation and then we would come along and give a little uh free educational workshop with that shelter if they wanted to rent it and that's how we started our business just with one small yurt renting to kids camps Doing this process, I had felt that really what we need is something that is going to provide us support that we can live off. And the kids' camp was great. There was more education, but it really wasn't going to pay the bills. And at this rate, we would have to keep our day jobs. Um, So later on in 2005, we started building our first palace yurt. We moved to the Annapolis Valley and discovered all the amazing hardwoods they have in the valley here. Um, the Acadian Forest in Nova Scotia is really different if you move a hundred kilometers west or south or north. If you go to the east coast it's mainly short softwoods but here in the valley it's full of ash and oak and beech and all these beautiful hardwoods that I longed to find but I thought weren't here in Nova Scotia. So discovering those hardwoods enabled us to start building this dream yurt that we've been thinking of something that was based on the yurts of the great khan's something that we figured was going to be a palace yurt and that's exactly what we called it this was a yurt built out of coppice wood um, but as i mentioned before our longest coppice wood pole that we use in its trimmed length is 15 foot so it meant if we wanted to go bigger than 25 foot as a yurt, we had to make that wheel bigger. So that was the the inspiration and the design process was born out how can we build a big yurt using English green woodworking techniques and coppicing? And the answer was, well, you've got to make your wheel bigger. But then when we had a big wheel, we're like, well what are we going to cover that with? And we quite simply put another yurt on our yurt and created this (laughs) two-tiered palace yurt, which has actually been replicated and copied in some way, or the idea copied and then rebuilt in their style by a few people throughout Canada and
0: America. I've never seen something like that.
1: You haven't seen it? There are a few others. There's an Instagram place called The Buffalo Farm that I follow. There you go, a little plug for those guys. They've got an awesome two-story yurt. Different construction from ours, a little bit, but similar idea, and it's also... But their their yurt is static, and I believe you can rent that and go and stay with them on the Buffley Farm through Airbnb. Um, So anyway, this two-story yurt, uh, not two stories that you can go into, but this cathedral ceiling, yurt on a yurt, was really where the tables turned for us. We rented that out for weddings and par. And the price point was of a commercial tent. And then re- we, here we realized we're working with the clients that we already know from being in the catering industry. So we know our clients. We know the needs of the caterers and the servers and the wants of the customers. So we were really positioned in this ideal position with our yeah. careers actually making us predisposed to create a catering company with our yurts, and we're catering to their shelter needs. So now, if you go to our website, you'll find that we have two palace yurts, um, a couple of uh, champagne yurts, which are a bit small, smaller, our lotus yurts of 30 foot, and we'll rent all of these for weddings through the summer and parties and festivals. Sometimes in groups. So if there's people with over 200 people, they might have to rent two yurts. Um, and then we're also using other nomadic cultural dwellings. So I mentioned the teepee earlier. We make a Sioux-style teepee from Cotton canvas, and we rent those out as little extra party areas for fire pits, um, also for powwows to local Mi'kmaq groups when they want a few extra teepees on site. And then also from uh, North Af- Africa, the
0: Bedouin tent Are you familiar with the Bedouin tent? I'm not. No, that one's actually new to me.
1: Uh, Okay, well, the Bedouin tent uh, has been used for thousands of years in North Africa by different groups of people, obviously. I mean, I've nicknamed it the Bedouin, but in fact, uh, there are more people than just the Bedouin who use this style of tent. It's an undulating canvas held up with a series of poles. So if you can imagine a, a giant pillowcase crowd of people, and if it was pinned down on one side, or two sides, or three sides, or even pinned down on four sides with just a small area to entrance, you get something that is very, very wind strong. So in a desert situation, they would pin down the sides to the ground from where the wind is coming from. So the storms would ride up and over their community. They would connect them together. Maybe it will be just a couple of families, or maybe it could be multiple families in multiple Bedouin tents connected together so the bad weather, storms, and the dust ride up and over their living spaces. So we felt, wow, we can build a little foot yurt stretch tent. And we actually get our stretch materials from africa the tent material because yeah. there is a company there that has been pioneering a donut shaped loom that gives the warp and the weft the same tension so that the fibers hmm. are stretched evenly when you put one of these stretch tent poles pushing up the uh, textile to the sky and raising it above head height yeah. these poles will be at different heights so the look of it is very undulating very random And although it could be set up like a sun shelter with all sides open, giving maximum accessibility, it could also be set up as a windscreen. Or in this pillowcase technique, the whole party is sheltered under this stretch tent. So the stretch tent has very little frame but we also use coppice wood um, as our frame poles. So one stretch tent might have 30 coppice wood poles supporting it with these little mushroom caps on the coppice wood poles. There'll be a tent, essentially this random structure, uh, looking structure. What I often say to my clients is uh, when you're renting a yurt, it's going to look exactly the way it does in the w- website in your backyard. The yurts go together exactly the same every single time. But the stretch tent goes together in a different way every time because it's a custom setup depending on the wind, the weather, the rain, and what the client wants out of their event.
0: Yeah. So How big, how big is this uh, tent when you're renting it? Uh,
1: the stretch tent, we have uh, stretch tents that are 35 foot by 25 foot, ideal okay. for a group of 60 to be underneath. Uh, but these stretch tents, unlike the yurts, can be connected together. So we can connect three of them together and then house 180 people.
0: Okay, that's pretty cool. Um,
1: so coppice wood poles, textile covered, and all ancient nomadic structures, whether you're looking at the yurt, the teepee, or the stretch tent. And, and that has been part of our focus, that if we're going to provide a fence, we're going to look to the past to find the traditions that work for hundreds of years
2: and then recreate
1: those for our clients.
0: I like that, Uh, especially, yeah, looking at it, how they're all uh, nomadic cultures, that makes it easier. You kind of see how um, they're used to being moved around Uh and put up and taken down and whatnot, which works for a catering business. Um, I've always kind of wondered, uh, because the yurts I'm I'm used to seeing, you see other yurts and whatnot, they're permanent buildings. They're, They're set up and they're just there. Are they difficult to take down and set up or are there some special techniques you learned or building processes you learned to have ones that are take downable that you can move around to different events?
1: Well, our yurt, we focus on simplicity. So there really aren't any fixtures or fittings with our yurts. It's wood and then those woods might go as a tenant into a mortise, which is a hole in the yeah. wood. So when things, you know, if you needed replacement parts, it isn't like you'd have to send off for a fitting. You know, maybe you need to take some string, which you could get from your local hardware store and replace a string that broke. So not only are the production methods simple, the construction is simple. And I like to think our 17-foot yurt could be put up in an hour. Um, If we build a 17-foot yurt for a cottage, it takes all day. But that's because we've got to build platform, or construct the platform and bring the furniture in. The actual yurt frame, I would say one or two hours. And it's that speed of assembly that enables it to work for us as a catering company. So our big palace yurt takes 10 hours to build. uh, And people know what they're paying for when we're there for that amount of time to make this once-in-a-lifetime structure for them. Yeah. Um, but we do focus on simplicity and compared to the modern plastic coated sawn wood uh, dome style yurts we think our yurts go together quicker and simply because that had to be part of the design process to make a rebuildable rental yurt.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Time setup is definitely a big one.
1: Yeah, I, I mean I'd like to point out uh to a few people, our point of view on yurts and permanent yurts. I know there's a lot of permanent yurts around. People put up a dwelling. They use it as a coven and a gift house. And every so often, the planning authorities in the area get shirty on the fact that the yurt was not built to code and, you know, it was put on a site and used permanently. Um, but my take on it is to not use the yurt in any permanent way. It was designed as a nomadic shelter. I personally think that if you want to have a yurt that lasts a long time, and it's made with natural materials, taking it down and moving it means that it gets a good airing out. You know, when it's rebuilt, it's like a freshly made bed. And my experience has shown me that in the course of a year, um, you might find bats, earwigs, wasps' nests, any number of things that might normally grow live in the ease of your house, will try and live in the ease of the yurt too. So moving it is a way of like cleaning the bed sheets and making it all tidy and fresh. Um, and also rotating it when it goes back to the same site, if that's where you're going to put it, enables the UV to try and keep the mildew away on the northerly side. Yeah. So rotate it. So it gets an even coating uh, of UV. Um And to the people that call us asking about uh, buying a permanent yurt, for most people, I recommend that they make a temporary platform that's in sections that they can move and then put their temporary yurt on top of it. So that at any stage, if the planning authorities want to inquire on whether it's permanent, the answer is no. Because in Nova Scotia, if you build a permanent structure, you have to build it to code. Yeah. But if you build a temporary structure you don't so there's the crutch
0: a little bit of a workaround it can be a little bit of a hassle if someone wants to be permanent but uh also yeah it makes sense to to be able to move it around from time to time and like you said it'll help with mildew and whatnot do you do you still cover your yurts with uh just canvas
1: yeah we use natural cotton 100 percent cotton and uh we've discovered and uh, this is another of a little for yurt technique We wanted to just follow nature, and we found that most things in nature don't have one membrane. You know, if our skin was one membrane, we'd pop like a balloon. But in (laughs) fact, it's many, many layers, Uh, and the outer layers degrade from the UV, from wear and tear, from acid rain, same thing on a yurt. So we suggest using natural materials that are semi-permeable, letting the Warm gases and uh, humidity escape through the canvas and then having layers. So what happens with canvas is that when the sunlight is shining on it, um, the UV thins the warp and the weft. Over a couple of years, let's say in the third year, the warp and the weft may have thinned enough that on a heavy rainstorm, you get a couple of drips. And people used to say about the army tents, don't touch the wall because you'll make a drip. And it's true. When the warp and weft is thin, if you touch the wall, then your finger acts as a conduit for that moisture to come through and you get a drip there. Yeah. So we simply uh, fix that problem while sticking with these, um, these uh, permeable membranes by layering them up. So we have two roof canvases. Now, when we did that, we saw an exponential life change in our yurts one single cover at year three we got a few drips and you could imagine as a wedding rental company that was pretty embarrassing yeah. um, since then i've learned that many many of the other rental companies have drips in their tents and it probably wouldn't have bothered me as much but back then at the beginning of the country company we were like we must solve this problem so we started making double canvas covers then as the years went by we saw that with two canvas covers, instead of lasting three years or six years, they were lasting 10 years or 15 years. And that's because that outer cover, which might become thin and crispy and almost a little brittle to the touch, still works as a barrier for the UV and the acid rain, protecting not only the undercover, but also the waterproof and mildew-proof finishes that are on that cotton undercover. So, outer cover... A little bit, uh, what's the word, expendable. I think there's another way of saying that. word sacrificial. A yeah. little bit sacrificial over time. And then when you find that that, cub, that cover is either ripping because it's too thin and uh, um, brittle, then you can take your inner cover, because it's the same as your outer cover, put it on the outside, and then purchase a new inner cover to become your inner layer. Therefore, there's never a time where your yurt frame or your home inside is
0: compromised by bad weather. Hmm. I never would have thought about that one. I guess that's something that, yeah, you don't think about until it starts happening, and then you have to figure out how to fix it.
1: Yeah, and like many things, rather than stress about a new modern way to fix it, we're like, okay, let's look at Mother Nature. What does she do? Yeah. Um, And there's a lot of answers there. I mean, for sure, all our answers are there.
0: You've uh you've mentioned back earlier in our conversation kind of the difference uh you you were building a Kyrgyz style versus a Mongol style yurt. What are some of the differences yeah. between the two of them? How do they vary? Yeah, well, the big
1: difference is uh, the type of wood in Mongolia, uh, which is also doesn't have a lot of tra- trees. They travel to the uh, the the foothills to get to areas where there's a lot of fir trees. Uh, And then in Mongolia, there's these belts of fir trees, so fir is their main building wood. Now, fir is soft, it's a little brittle, it's not terribly strong. So what they do is they just have a more dense uh, lattice work on the walls. And because the density of the lattice directly equates to the number and density of the roof poles, maybe the lattice spacing would be on seven inches, and making them have a third more if not half as 50 percent more again roof poles on the roof we're using hardwood which again as i mentioned in kyrgyzstan they use hardwood a lot more strength uh, in the fibers so that trellis can be less dense meaning there's less wood it's easier to transport not necessarily lighter because the hardwood's a lot heavier so you need less of it and in fact, the two designs, in the end, they come to something that's the similar kind of strength. The Mongolian yurt will have more wood in it to make up for the, the weaker density of the softwood. The wheels are also quite different. A hardwood technique of building the wheel is to split it and then steam it, whereas the softwood doesn't operate very well as steaming, so they will cut those out and laminate with joinery techniques and for a long time in asia they've had very advanced joinery techniques with hand tools uh, like in the japanese building style Uh, they're very skilled with chisels and saws uh, to make just spectacular components by joinery
0: i've seen a lot from yeah japanese um, craftsmen a lot of japanese joinery and it looks pretty amazing they still have a lot of uh Experience and a lot of knowledge in the uh, hand tool joinery area.
1: Yeah, and because they did joinery with hand tools, their joinery dates back way further than the kind of joinery we have in England because a lot of our joinery came around when the water sawmill came along. And uh, before that, uh, you can imagine that it was a very labor intensive process to get either two people in a pit with a pit saw or somebody adding the uh, timbers into a square. So pre-sawmill, the wood that was built with jewellery and fashioned into square shapes was used for high-value high value applications. So that means the landowner's mansion or house.
2: Yeah. And that
1: might mean, you know, armadas or boat building. And for the, the 99%, they had to build with strict them. And it's that sticks and mud technique is really uh, what interested me because it was accessible, it wasn't expensive, and uh, it's something that we can all rediscover for ourselves in our backyard.
0: It is kind of interesting how, yeah, the, the peasant techniques of the past are kind of the ones that I'm drawn to. It's it's more accessible and it's a little Absolutely. easier and a little more affordable and kind of interesting how that how that happens throughout history it's we all culture has kind of pushed you towards wanting the extravagance or seeing all the extravagance or the uh not extravagance per se but going a more costly route because that was that was the desirable thing but now there's kind of a return to looking at some of the old peasant techniques and wondering why we don't use them more
1: yeah, I mean, I think accessibility and empowerment is what really comes to me when I think of those peasant techniques. They were made by people who didn't have much for themselves. And, and it's that very fact that makes it accessible to anybody today at little cost. And, and I'm like you asked to, uh, for me to list off the, the tools that you need. It's a very humble selection of tools that you could round together for, get most of them together for $100, yeah. leaving you not too out of pocket.
0: I think the other thing that comes to mind, the other word that comes to mind for me is resourcefulness, learning to use what's around you for what you need.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And and in fact, that resourcefulness and uh, design process really can be combined. You don't need to think of it as, well, I haven't got much to work with. But it's more like these restrictions, these restrictions in components, in accessibility, in site, are all part of my design criteria to make something that is right on the edge of as simple as possible, as cheap as possible, and as effective as possible, whether it be a house or a yurt. Uh,
0: Trying to meet on the edge of those three that you just mentioned, cost, effectiveness, and uh, ease or simplicity, that's... That's a big thing for any craftsman to try and reach, too, to meet them all. Well,
1: I'm really grateful for coppicing because coppicing, I mean, the reason our yurts look different from other people's yurts is because of that wild wood look. Now, yeah. uh, a coppice pole, you can't saw. saw. You can't plane it. You, you just can't. It's too random. So it can only be followed by the edge of a blade and the fine adjustments that you make in your wrist as you draw it towards you. And just to let people know that when you start drawing, I think it's a bit like writing uh, with a pencil. Your wrist's learn the small movements that it's going to do in the same way those tiny movements make different letters when you write those small movements that you have to do to change the direction and depth of that blade and after you've done let's say the first 10 of your 250 poles that you're going to shave for your heads
2: um,
1: (laughs) your brain begins to learn and it's like you as long as you watch with your eyes your wrists follow the line and you start making those tiny adjustments without even thinking about it. It becomes second nature. So that is really, really fun as well. It looks beautiful. It looks complicated but when you go to do it, oh it feels so natural.
0: I like, um I really like the look of your guys' yurts how yeah, they, they do still have that wild branch look to them in some places. That's beautiful. Very Very organic and more natural feeling. So I like that
1: actually um, we we you know we built a, a small straw bale cabin in Wales, and pretty much probably three or four months before we left there, um, a chap called Simon Dale and his wife Jasmine, and two new children came to stay in our straw bale shelter um, mm-hmm. while they were staying at the community now. Um, there's a really amazing website that he's created since then. Simon Dale moved on to the Lamas Project in England, which is a permaculture project. And he has a website. It's uh, I see it's simondale.net. I'm going to add them as a few links to your email yeah. afterwards. And uh, his, where, his website's called beingsomewhere.net. And he built what he calls a hobbit house. Um, and it's an earthen-roofed roundwood timber frame hardwood built house um, and no doubt he would have used some of those greenwood working techniques to build this round wood frame and I'm looking at the rafters there and the purlings in the roof and each one of them is made from a split round piece of log split and then the flat side put down um, so I'll add that to a link um, because I think his house that he built was inspirational for anybody who wants to build something truly natural looking uh, as if it came out, Lord of the
2: Rings.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll link that up. That would be a fascinating one to see some pictures of. So I'll have to go take a look at that one after as well. Uh, I really yeah. appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. I've I've had a ton of fun. I've learned a lot. uh I've covered a wide variety yeah, of too. different topics uh, between liming and coppicing and uh, natural building in general. And so, um, yeah, it's been a lot of fun.
1: Great. Yeah, thank you for giving me this opportunity to chit-chat to you and any other listeners about green woodworking and yurt making. Uh, I hope that uh, it inspires some people to enjoy those projects for themselves.
0: Do you have anywhere you want to point folks towards other than your website?
1: Well, um, definitely for green woodworking, those resources I mentioned, uh, Ray Tabor, Ben Law, and Mike Abbott. Um, I think if you're on the internet... Go and look at the Roundhouse project and also um, simondale.net being somewhere, his website, just to see other natural builds. They're not year related, but they're natural building related. So you can see how people who wanna say, there's many, many ways to create it for yourself. Uh, how many thousands of ways can a house be built? Um, I'm just so excited to see different ways it can be done. And many yeah, people who come to our yurt building workshops, take what they learn with us, and then rebuild things in a totally different way. Just to mention something from our website, um, there is the uh, Yurt Builders Hall of Fame um, that we have created, and it is it's on our website. I don't Where's the Yurt Builders Hall of Fame on our website under workshops um, on our website and then you can see all the different yurts that people have built after they went to the website and some of them they've combined items from the hardware store things that are accessible to them to create a really awesome different kind of yurt so carry on reinventing a thing that's been reinvented and recreated for thousands of years in
2: different countries with different climates.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Folk Craft Revival podcast. As always, the show notes and links from this episode can be found over at folkcraftrevival.com forward slash whatever the episode number is. I should tell you right now in your your podcast player what episode this is. I appreciate you tuning in. If you have any guest or topic suggestions, or any other feedback for that matter, I'd love to hear from you. Shoot me an email over at daniel at folkcraftrevival.com. If you want to help the podcast grow, the best way to do that is recommend and share it with others that have like interests. Second best, go give me a rating and review over in the Apple Podcasts slash iTunes platform. Um, that's the biggest podcast platform, and doing it over there will really help me rise in the, the search rankings and show up to a few more people when they're looking for stuff. So, uh, In fact, while you're at it, just mash the subscribe button while you're there. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Now let's uh, get out there and make something.